0: anyone who's writing in the world of self-help opens themselves up to a kind of an examination of their motives and of their actual, uh, the distance between who they are and who the work purports them to be.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off-topic. Today I talk with Brian Koppelman, who's probably best known for co-writing movies like Rounders and Ocean's 13 or for being the creator and showrunner of the Showtime series Billions. As it happens, I'm most familiar with Brian through his podcast The Moment, which I found after hearing him interviewed on Tim Ferriss' podcast. The Moment features interviews with people like Edward Norton and Roseanne Cash and Killer Mike and Amy Mann. Listening to The Moment over the years has made me feel like I'm in on the conversation in that way that podcasts can do, And since I created Deviate in part to join these conversations, I decided to invite Brian Koppelman onto my own show. In a way, this was a pure distillation of the deviation aspect of Deviate. I sent him a number of possible topics to discuss based on the interest I've sensed in his podcast, including the movie The Big Lebowski and Steven Soderbergh's film journal from the movie Sex, Lies, and Videotape. We ended up talking about music, specifically albums we've come to love without really being interested in the artist's other work. I got this idea when I heard Brian's interview with the singer-songwriter Liz Fair. Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville album is one of my all-time favorites, but I haven't really listened to her other albums. Brian has a similar one-off relationship with Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast album, and our attempt to figure out why turns into a fun conversation about why we love specific albums from specific artists at specific times of our lives. We start by going meta and talking about how you can be the true version of yourself in a venue like a podcast, where you can think out loud in an honest way, and that's certainly true of me. Let's listen in. I've been listening to your podcast since your Grantland days, actually, and uh, there's sort of this strange familiarity that comes with listening to podcasts, and part of what we're going to talk about today is fandom and being a fan of something very specific. But I think there's something interesting about podcast fandom, because it's more than just being a consumer of a cultural product. You're actually listening to this person in your ear as if they're a friend. And so you're part of this sort of virtual community that's built up in my ear over the years, including our virtual, our, our mutual friend, Tim Ferriss, uh, Chuck Closeman, who I've been a fan of for a long time, um, and so I'm just curious to know, do you get many people, I suspect you do, who approach you as a fan, not of your various uh, film and show running efforts, but just because of your podcast?
0: Yes. Uh, the connection that I have with loyal podcast listeners is a deep one. It, where it is sometimes tricky for me is that if you've been listening to 200 hours of me talking to often people I know well, but always people I admire a great deal, you get a real window into a version of me that's very close to who I am. Hmm. But I don't have that. Now I've read your book, Vagabonding. I, you know, I know who you are, but um, generally, I'm not going to know you, the listener nearly as well as you know me. And I try, as you heard me talk about the last time I was on Tim's podcast, I really try to be the same person that I am in real life when I'm on, in the, in, on social media and in the public sphere. I, I have found that the less distance there is um, between the public facing version of yourself and the actual version of yourself, the easier life is. And the, you know, if, if one of the battles we all have is to feel comfortable in our bodies, in our skin, with ourselves, then the more we can unify all the versions of ourselves. You know, Dylan has a new song based on the Whitman poem uh, "I Contain Multitudes" on his new record, and so we all do, of course. But the more that those things are synthesized, the better. Which is to say, you probably do know me—a real a version uh, of me that's very close to who I am. If you're somebody who spent time listening to me think in front of a microphone
1: yeah it's it's a it's a strange intimacy that attaches itself that may be a little bit historically unique you know i've been listening to bill simmons who's been friends with you for a long time for such yeah. a long time that I sort of instinctively sort of see him in a friend type way. So when he when he sold uh, his franchise to Spotify, it was just alarming. It's like, oh yeah, Bill Simmons is actually not just this dude I listen to talking about movies. He's actually this you know important person, and which which he always has been. But I think the podcast sort of gives you this familiarity. Um, you know, this person. Well, you yeah, hear. that's
0: what's quite fun for me. You know amazing really to me is that I have actual relationships with most of the people to whom I listen, you know, so I like you, I listen to Bill, but I've been friends with Bill, as you said, for 20 years, you know, I met Tim long before he had a podcast. So, and that's a super fun, um, thing about, uh, the world, the way it is now, you know, you can get a microphone if you, I really think doing a podcast as, you know, in a way, um, it's seen now as almost a a de rigueur extension of anybody who's like living any sort of a public life at all is that they're going to have a podcast and it's fun to make make fun of that but what a wonderful way to connect with people uh, to get to know people you admire to you know it's replaced the hey can we get a coffee together thing which is a burden often for the person on the receiving end but by very definition when you're asking someone to be on on your podcast you're promising a, a, a kind of an amount of research, attention, focus, that a coffee, which is, uh, often has one way benefit, a mm-hmm. podcast has two way benefit. And so I, I, I have been able to, uh, really b- build uh, relationships, uh, with people through this medium. And I do love the medium and that's a huge part of the reason why I love it.
1: Yeah. You know, there's, um, I've been podcasting for probably three years, and there's people like Wesley Morris, for example, who is part of the Grantland and, and The Ringer, uh, appears on The Ringer podcast a lot, and that sort of gave me a pretext to approach uh, Wesley Morris, and so my first interview with him was sort of about my, the fact that I'm a Wesley Morris fan, you know? Love it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and so we talked about other things, but it's, uh, it's just interesting, you know, I, I think like you approached Tim... And I think Chuck Klosterman, uh, before you had a podcast, like you had a platform as a film guy, um, basically a calling card that said, look, I'm an interesting person. Are you interested in talking? Um, so like pre-podcast, what was, who, what kind of people besides Tim and Chuck did you approach and how did you? Well,
0: I, I, I think with Chuck, I didn't just approach Chuck. It was, there were actually um,
1: specific.
0: It wasn't like, Hey, I want to be pals with Chuck Klosterman or Tim. Exactly. It was that. Because part of what I do is produce, write and produce movies, direct movies. Um, with Chuck, he'd written a book that um, the one, I forget the title of it in this minute, but the Kill, one about- Killing
1: Yourself to Live, I think. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I thought there was a way to take that book, uh, Steve Allman's book, Candyland and, and, or Candy something, and one other book and make a movie out of these three books. And I started with Chuck and we had mutual friends and so it was easy to get to Chuck Then Chuck was in the documentary that my partner and I made on Jimmy Connors. So I had with Chuck before the podcast, I'd had many touches in a way where, and I was a fan for, for, for sure. And, and with Tim, I'd read four hour work week and just thought, well, there's something in this guy that could touch my, my world professionally. Uh, there have been very few people that I've just reached out to, um, and said, Hey, I want to get to meet this person. Seth is one. I mean, I definitely did. Um, Reach out to Seth Godin uh, at a certain point, and sort of say, "Well, here's what I who I am. Here's what I do. Here are things we have in common, and I would love to spend fifteen or twenty minutes together sometime." And um, but I waited. I did that at a, at a point where I knew it was it was possible. Um, uh, I I I felt like I had something to to bring to the table there too.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think you were the tenth. Uh, guest on Tim's podcast I was like number 41 Uh, and I'm pretty sure we talked about you because we talked about screenwriting and I had always assumed that Tim had been putting feelers out did you put the idea in his head that the four-hour workweek or some sort of Tim version of a screenplay might be possible
0: yeah I might have been the person who put it in his head or maybe it was in his head before I called him and that's why Hmm. we then were able to get together right away I mean it was all early it was you know he had been working on writing body but he hadn't Body hadn't come out yet. He hadn't finished it or he had just finished it. So, you know, it's a long time ago now, right? Ten years maybe.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned Body just in the context of this little community of people who are in my ear all the time because I'm a big Script Notes podcast fan uh, with John August and Craig Mazin. And yeah, guys,
0: I've known I've known those guys a really long time as well. Of course,
1: yeah, yeah, and that's such an appealing podcast that they're just so good. Um they are but, terrific. But it was as a guy who knows t- Tim, it was funny to hear John August recommend the Four Hour Body. Uh, he clearly got a lot out of it, but then he called Tim like the Ryan Lochte of uh, of advice writers or something. And so it was like, oh, one, one person in my community said something, threw some shade at another person in my community. Um, so, I don't hey, even know what that comment. I don't know what that comment purports to mean. Actually, uh, yeah. well, Ryan Lochte was an Olympic swimmer who was a little no. Of du- course, douchey. I know I know who he was, but don't you think? It, I, know, I think I would interpret it that maybe he means because
0: Tim's an advice writer who's actually like in good shape, like Ryan Lochte was.
1: Yeah, I think I think you know John. I don't know John August, but I felt maybe he didn't want to be accused of like having a crush on Tim, so he wanted to say I like his advice, but his persona is not my thing. And you and Tim have talked about how. Um, you know, there's sort of a, Tim doesn't want to be Tim in air quotes, but I think sometimes people see him in air quotes. So they presume that there's a Ryan lochte you know, sort of a superficiality to him. But, you know, you and I have both hung out with him in person and he's just, he, he seems to me that like this pretty sincere, very focused guy.
0: Oh, I, I I have nothing but warm, great affection
1: for Tim Ferriss.
0: And he's over the long number of years become a uh, friend, someone I can count on and he count on me. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Look, the self-help, anyone who's writing in the world of self-help opens themselves up to a kind of an examination of their motives and of their actual, uh, the distance between who they are and who the work purports them to be. But of all those people I've met, I think, uh, who are squarely in the self-help world, Tim is the most, uh, there's the, the 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 smallest gap between the, the 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 Tim in the book and the Tim in real mm-hmm. life. I mean, he is that dude. He's that guy in a great way, I think.
1: Yeah, I thought about it. I mean, I'm guessing maybe your podcast has been compared to Tim's podcast or maybe that there's sort of an overlap in audiences at the very least.
0: Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I was doing mine. I mean, Tim was an er- early guest on my podcast, too. Mm-hmm. He's so, yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, well, I just think, you know, Tim is a high-functioning guy, and it feels like maybe you're high-functioning as well. You know, it, it just, as as a person who runs a television show, it feels like you have a lot of other things going on also, um, including your podcast.
0: Well, um, I just follow my enthusiasms. I think Tim plans maybe more than I do in a certain way. Um, I just am led by curiosity, enthusiasm, and fascination. And then, yes, I'm able to actualize things because I'm I've worked hard to teach myself how to and then I just sort of if I'm find myself really passionate about something I devote the time to like during this period of the the pandemic um I decided I wanted to get better at guitar I write songs I love doing it but I'm a bad guitar player and so you know I've been practicing guitar for an hour or two hours a day and um I signed up for online lessons like i I will just, and, and I don't know if that's being highly functioning or whatever. It's just like, well, I think it's a combination of things. Well, I love being a student. So I approach all this stuff. That's what it's like with curiosity and like a student. And so, you know, 54 year old, maybe there are a lot of 54 year olds who wouldn't want to take a guitar lesson from some 28 year old woman. Um, who's like, can run rings around me as a guitar, but I'm so into the idea that I can get better at something. and, 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 And then I lose myself in it, and I always find that I come out the other side better in some way. You know, I'll never be—I'm not going to be Carlos Santana at the end of this, but maybe I'll be able to play one Carlos Santana solo. Wouldn't that be awesome? Be able to do.
1: Well, that's a great habit, and we will eventually. This conversation is going to touch on music a whole lot, but I think I read like Kirk Hammett when he was when he was. Took, taken on by Metallica, he actually got guitar lessons. Did I learn that from your podcast or something else?
0: No, that wasn't on my podcast. But no, the, the one of those that I love is that when you watch that incredible long, there've been a few Rush documentaries, but the really long Rush documentary. Um, I mean, Neil, Neil, for the great late Neil Peart, he, uh, when he was acknowledged as you know the best living drummer, he was taking deep, serious lessons where he re. Um, sort of recreated the way that he played the drums and and the documentary talks all about it and it's fascinating to me that that dude you know was that committed in that way.
1: Yeah, no, I was really really intrigued with that guy because of his lyrics as much as anything when I was maybe about 12 or 13. Yes. Um Yes. I just I actually looked up what entre new means. It took a while before the internet. Right. But uh That's funny. Yeah. No, but I think I think this touches on something that you're, podcasts like mine, perhaps, and Tim's is true to themselves. Like, Tim isn't trying to be Ryan Lochte, he's just a very intense and focused guy. And so his interests are going to represent what his own obsessions are. Um, And I think one interesting thing that came up when I was talking to him in the podcast, which ties into a show that you're the showrunner for is we were talking about he was talking about how hard it is to get billionaires together right how um, trying to get more than one billionaire to, to, to give up 36 uh, hours at a time is is quite difficult and since you know being familiar with this part of America is part of presumably part of your familiarity and research for the show is there anything appealing about billionaires like is there anything that that they have that they have that normal people don't you know apart from like the fuck you money aspect of it this is yeah this-
0: well well there it, I mean, when you lump them in like that, it's sort of hard, right? But if we Hmm. disambiguate a little bit, I mean, right, because there are self-made billionaires, there are tech tech billionaires, there are Wall Street billionaires, there are entertainment billionaires, right? So there there are oil billionaires. And and, um, there are ways to generalize, but I've had to make um, a much more forensic study of them. And so for me, I have to separate out what we're talking about. I would say that some of them are remarkable. And some of them are, uh, remarkable in ways that, uh, also are sometimes compelling and admirable and, and often that's not the case. Uh, but I don't want to spend too much time Ralph talking about billionaires. You know, I spend so much of my time thinking about it. And also I kind of want to let the show talk about where I am about that stuff. Mm. I, um, the show is pretty careful in the way that it depicts these people and, Um, I want to let that play out that string. And so I rarely talk about the, the sort of what I really think I'd rather the work. First of all, I'd rather save it up for myself even. So let it show up in my journal or let it show up as I'm writing the characters. I don't get, I don't think it serves the art very much for me to talk out what I'm wrestling with.
1: Yeah, uh, underst- understood, absolutely. Uh, I guess one philosophical subtext of that doesn't necessarily apply to billionaires or or you know the vocational level at which you have to know them. Um but how is like the idea of ambition versus satisfaction manifest itself in your life? You, you well, just,
0: yeah, it's great to talk. I mean yeah, I mean that's again a central theme on our show and and I can't answer, I realize I can say though one billionaire did say to me once when I asked him that question that Tim said uh, I, I, I uh, he said, listen, man, you know, I've done what I have to become this person and I want to be the only Billy in the room. So I did find he, that's a quote, you know, from a billionaire. Huh. And w- so I get it. That's what they, you know, you, why, if you're ambitious enough to want that, I can see in their minds why, uh, they don't want it to become a team exercise or a group exercise. They want to be the person uh standing out um and then as far as the question of ambition versus did you say fulfillment what did you say ambition versus what
1: oh i said satisfaction but it could be fulfillment sure well at a certain point ambition's thin
0: ambition drives you i mean i was talking about this with uh i think seth on my pod at one point which is you get older you're more interested in i guess what david lynch might describe as like the thicker the thicker rewards you know and ambitions um the rewards of ambition are thinner and the rewards of curiosity and fascination and healthy obsession are thicker and so uh it's not that i have no ambition obviously you 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 don't become um i think it's hard to become successful in the, the fields that i've uh engaged in if you don't have ambition and i'm not going to lie and and say that i'm not someone who 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 doesn't care about success i care about success i I wanted to be able to live the life that I wanted to be able to live with my family. I wanted financial rewards. I, I don't like when people sort of say that they didn't care about that at all. I, I wanted that, but it was not the priority. That's a really important distinction. My ambition was not a financial ambition. I, that's a, it was in there, it mattered, but my ambition was a creative ambition. Beyond that, it was a, a kind of an ambition toward a kind of fulfillment and satisfaction, an ambition toward something that would help me to be a better human, uh to those that I loved. And and for me, that meant finding a way to be engaged in something that I wouldn't feel like was sucking the life out of me, but rather gave me uh gave me more life. So something that was energizing, not enervating, you know? And uh and then again, um, there was some faith, I guess I had that if I did this thing well. Uh, And it's all everything I've done professionally, pretty much with my creative partner, David Levine, who's my lifelong best friend. But uh, so the two of us together, I certainly wanted uh, financial rewards as well. But that was never, um, never been a a driver for for me or the main driver.
1: Yeah, no, it it seems like, I mean, you talk a lot about, you know, meditation or morning pages. I mean, just very simple things that are not necessarily um, you know, tied to certain kinds of success. I actually years ago, I, I sort of fancied myself a screenwriter. Um, and all these years later, I sort of, I'm sort of glad I uh, ended up being the person that I ended up being. Um, so it's it's interesting. I will turn fifty later this year, and it's just interesting about how that relationship shifts over the course of one's yes. life. Yes,
0: you know? yes, it really does. I want to speak to say one. I had one other thought about ambition, which is, I do and did have an ambition to try and be great, and. So I did have an ambition to, you know, be able to write something, create something that I would be able to hold up to something David Mamet wrote, Uh, you know, or like, so, so there was an ambition, the the, the ambition, which makes you be relentless and rigorous in your work that, but it's like for me and, 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 you know, when I'm dead, it'll be clear whether I was able to do that. But like when we were writing rounders, there's no doubt we wanted to do something that would have the impact of the house of games, you know, the hat on us, the mammoth movie or diner. So there, there's this, this, this ambition to realize in the work, your loftiest goals through the application of tremendous rigor and discipline and focus. And I think that is a kind of ambition, even though it's not the way ambition is typically used. Typically ambition focuses on the rewards of doing that kind of work. And I would just say, I had very little ambition about the rewards of the work and a ton of ambition about the work. Hmm.
1: Is is Rounders, uh, like, what role does that play in your professional life now? Because, you know, I talk about vagabonding all the time. I've written four books. Vagabonding is 17 years old. I talk about it all the time, and it's become such an essential part of my career now in a way that I completely enjoy. Is Rounders still, does it still, is it still a part of, your professional, well, the
0: first thing from it, you know, like the first thing and the fact that it had this impact that it's a great, there are so many, uh, object lessons that come out of that story of that movie that, of um, that it, it, it comes up and because people love it so much, like, and I do think that the, a great reward that I hadn't anticipated of billions is that David and I did something now that has uh, an even bigger cultural reach and that people love as much or more than that. And To get to do that at a later stage in our career, what is just a super fun thing, you know, Uh, not something anticipated so that so that it's not only about rounders to me. And and obviously we made produced, written or directed like 13 movies. But the because that was the first movie, because of the kinds of people who love that movie, it, it does come up all the time.
1: Do you meet any, are there any people who have no interest in in, in uh, rounders but they love billions or vice versa? Sure, oh,
0: of course, yes, of course. Um, well, you know, yeah, when you put stuff out in the public world, it, when you put stuff out in the public, people are gonna, I mean, it's what you started with, asking are there people who like the podcast and don't do the other stuff? And yeah, the answer's surprisingly to me, there are a lot of people who listen to the podcast who probably don't really know the work. Um, but hmm. it's all one thing, right? It is all one thing of people interacting in some way with, this force that I put out into the world, you know, with the stuff that I'm engaged that, that I'm interested in. And if you and if you do dip into the to the work, you'll find resonances throughout. Right, you'll find stuff that connects. Right, from us referencing Clean Eastwood movies and Rounders to the way we reference movies in Billions, like to the kind of characters we write about, make a movie about in Solitary Man. Like it's all, it is all one body of work, and and it's a body of work that runs through the stuff I did for. Grantland or the writing for Sports Illustrated when I do it or the podcast. It's all, I have to think of it all as sort of an, uh, the the way in which I'm exercising this impulse toward creativity.
1: I'm completely with you on that. I mean, there's, there's ways that all of my books speak to each other and so do the articles, but... One thing that we had discussed about uh, discussing in this particular podcast is the idea of one-off fandom. And I think this probably happens to me more than you, given your body of work that I've written four books, but people always want to talk about vagabonding. And that's great. That works for me. Then I was listening to Liz Fair on your podcast. um, And like Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville is probably top 10 for me. You know, that album is super important and super special. But as I was listening to her talk, I realized that I don't really know her other albums and I haven't really sought them out that I don't know why. And this is maybe something we can unpack in the context of pieces, you know, works of art that you have a similar relationship with that. for sure. I, don't, I don't know if Exile and Guyville just satisfied that itch or if it's her greatest work, it probably is, but somehow Exile and Guyville is one of my top 10 all time albums, but yet I haven't really even that seriously explored other Liz fair. And I think this is a true thing. I, I um, I believe, like, Iron Maiden's uh, Number of the Beast. Do you have a similar relationship with that?
0: Well, yeah. W- when, you, when you asked me this question about one-offs, um, Exile and Guyville um, announced not just a new recording artist, but a new way that, uh, that women were talking about the lives they were living hmm. in a specific moment.
1: You've been over-
0: If you were in tune with music and the cultural movements, there was this person who looked a certain way, who had a certain intellectual toolkit that was really evolved, and who found a way to get onto an album in a totally, this word unified again, but in a totally unified unified way, um, a new way of expressing something, right? Cause that album was also recorded. That guy, she and Brad Wood made this record in a way that people weren't really making records. It sounded different. She was talking about something different in, in a very brazen manner and it just cut through. And if it got you, it got you. And it, 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 there's no way that any other album by Liz could r- introduce her again. Right? So you met her and you got Man. this huge hit and, now it 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 took on this life of its own. I mean, the other thing I thought of is Bright Light's Big City that I could talk about that way, right? Um, Jay McInerney's book. Mm-hmm. Because uh that book, for me, none of his he's a great figure, and I've loved some of his essays. But that book remains just this incredible book where where you got the full, you got this guy's world of view, uh, and his view of a certain kind of awakening to a certain kind of world that existed in New York that you couldn't get again exactly because he showed it to you. But yeah, music, I, but uh, you would ask me in the context of records because I guess of the Liz Fair thing. And I am someone, you know, I'm I'm pretty encyclopedic about music. You listen to the pod, so you know, I'm I'm a gigantic music fiend. I uh, So I'm fairly obsessive, but I was trying to think. Of, so if I'm into someone's music, I'm gonna go and give them a lot of chances. I'm I'm gonna do a deep dive on all their records. If if they make a record that really, really affected me, um and and so for my favorite bands, Bob Dylan, REM, uh, the Hold Steady, uh, being Van Halen from the beginning, like I could I I love all the whole body of work. I have favorites, but but if you ask me to tell you the albums that have had the most impact on me, one of them is unquestionably Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast. I, I remember uh, how I first interacted with that album and why. It's an album I've listened to for 30 years, uh, more, 35 years or whatever. Um, and interestingly, so so Iron Maiden had made two albums with a lead singer named Paul Deano, Iron Maiden and Killers, right? And those were really cool albums. They were written about in the British press. I was young. I'm going to look up now. I didn't look up before we start talking. But if I look up... Um, the years of those albums, I bet you I was in ninth grade, right? When, when, um, the first Iron Maiden album came out and I'm just looking up their discography while we're talking so that I can be accurate here in this
1: conversation. I think it's 82. Does that sound right?
0: Well, yeah, but so 82 is number of the beast, but here's the thing, right? I was in ninth grade when the first Iron Maiden album came out and in 10th grade, when the second one came out, Iron Maiden and killers. And I liked those records. I knew them. And I liked them. They were cool. They, uh, they were this British band, the new wave of British heavy metal. It was kind of a fascinating thing. But then they kicked their singer out, this guy Paul Diano, or he left. And it was really unclear. The bass player, Steve Harris, wrote the music, but, and the words, but it was mostly, but it was un- unclear what, what could possibly uh, be with this band. And then they released this album, The Number of the Beast. And it's the only time I ever cut school to buy an album, because I'd heard a track on the radio called Run to the Hills. cut right through me. Uh, and I went and got that album and every single song on it, uh, everything they were singing about for a guy who was 15 years old, which I was, or maybe just turned 16. I was about to turn 16, uh, when it came out. So I was still 15. It was utterly compelling. They were smart, uh, their music was incredible. Every song had gigantic, incredible crescendos. They had a full mythology. I, they played right near my house, like five minutes from my house before the album exploded into the world in a place that only hold, held probably fifteen hundred people. Then I went to see that concert with my friends and then they be, you know that album became massive and then they became like one of the biggest heavy metal bands in the world. But I've never and, and there are many people who argue that the two albums after uh, Peace of Mind and Power Slave might be their best, you know, uh, should be in the conversation for their best album. But I've never given a shit about I, I love, I, you know, one of my favorite bands in a certain way of all time, because they made this album that mattered to me so much. But the truth is, I still know every word to the number of the beast album. And I maybe listen to Peace of Mind twice in my whole life and maybe Power Slave I listen to once and then nothing. Huh. And it could be because my musical taste changed. I went to college. I found REM and right. I went to college and a piece of mine came out in 83. Uh, I went to college in 84, but, uh, and you know, somewhere along the way, my musical taste changed. That would make sense if I never listened to number of the beast again, but I've never gone six months without listening to number of the beast. And that album makes maiden really matter to me. Like, you know, if you told me maiden were coming to town and I could see them, I would, I would be like, should I go see Iron Maiden? For whatever reason, I just Number of the Beast is Iron Maiden to me, and Iron Maiden is Number of the Beast to me.
1: I'm curious how much this is, you know, musical or lyrical, and how much of it is autobiographical and specific to your life. Because you know, sure, sure. When you mentioned Iron Maiden, I sort of sometimes get them confused with Judas Priest, just because of the era. Like, I didn't listen to them specifically. But then when I went on and I listened to to Number of the Beast, it's as if I had been familiar with it. It was like listening to New Order, another '80s band I didn't listen to yes. in the '80s. Uh, and then I then it just sounds so familiar. And like I have a very specific upbringing. I, I grew up, uh, you know, sort of in a Christian environment with evangelical friends. And so <laughs> Number of the Beast sort of reminded me of Striper in a way that clearly this Christian metal band was influenced by by Iron Maiden back in the day. So right, I was going to say, no, Striper did something very different. <laughs> Striper's subject matter was very different. Well, exactly. Exactly. But that's that was yeah. the lens through which I got heavy metal, a lot of my heavy metal. That's- back in the day. And so it's funny that, you know, sort of my touch point for that kind of music is actually a band that was very obviously ripping off Iron Maiden um, with different lyrics. And so I'm curious to know how much of this is musical or with Iron Maiden specifically. I mean, they're a very narrative band. They they talk about Tennyson and Shakespeare and, you know, Alexander yes. the Great sometimes. And then how much is it is musical? I mean, how much is it autobiographical? Like who you were when you were 15 and what was in your head when you were 15?
0: Well, sure. But like I like other heavy, I've tried to think about this, you know, since you asked the question. It's like, Uh, There's something about the songs that they wrote then, and if I I think of it, it might be autobiographical, but I think it's Steve Harris's autobiography. There was this real battle for the soul of Iron Maiden in the album Killers when these two guys, the lead singer and the main songwriter uh, and visionary for the band, obviously were at loggerheads. And now, on reflection, Iron Maiden got so much more successful when they changed lead singers. But I bet you for Steve Harris, it was utterly in question. And he probably said to himself, I have to make the greatest heavy metal album of all time in order to, because it's not just me who thinks this, if you, if you search for the greatest heavy metal albums of all time, even though, as I say, a lot of Iron Maiden fans will argue, but the general, the general heavy metal fan, the number of the Beast is considered one of the 10 heavy metal, best heavy metal records of all time, because picture being this guy who started off on this career, you've become big in your home country, you're breaking in America, you've had a gold album in America, but you're not yet a headlining arena act and you're, you and your singer split and you're the bass player. And now you have to make an album that is going to make everybody forget what the band was before. And then you write this series of songs with, with run to the Hills and number the beast. And, um, you, uh, I think you deliver something that lives up to your grandest vision of what's possible, you know, and, and and so for me, that's what this was. Um, for me, that's what this is about.
1: I, I'm just wondering if, like, your 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 instinct for narrative is connected to your interest in this album specifically? Because you know, sure. you, you were talking about how, like, on Liz Fair's "Exile in Guyville," that's such a narrative. I mean, there's you can teach writing lessons and just of the stories she tells and the characters she evokes in that. Um, Com- and, And so I feel like for me, like Exile and Guyville, part of the reason I like it so much is that it's really, really brilliant narratively. Um, And so do you think there's a parallel with Number of the Beast? Number of the Beast is an outlier to me
0: because I'm not someone who was ever really interested in the sword and sorcery aspect or in in general on other records. Like it's not really something that drew me in. The the hard rock that I really listened to was Van Halen back then, which was funny, right? David Lee Roth was funny. And... Mm. Uh, there's very, there's nothing funny on number of the beast. I mean, they're, those guys, uh, they have a lot of, their only sense of humor is in, in their mascot, Eddie, the Ed, but, um, I it's, it's, um, music is def- in some ways, your personal connection to music in some ways defines analysis like this because of the way in which music hits you at some kind of molecular level, I think. And so, yeah, we could take it apart, but. But in truth, it's the whole package. It's the power. I, I think it's the power and the melodies in Bruce Dickinson's voice. And and then, yeah, the themes. Right. Then then the, the way in which. Uh, they're talking about some American ideas, some British ideas. And. Um, but again, it's 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 less about the lyrical journey and more about the gestalt of the whole thing.
1: Is this something that you take into account, or is it an influence on you as a musician? You you, t- you talk a fair amount about writing songs. Um, you made it no secret that you're an REM fan, Dylan. You know, um, even Counting Crows, Jason Isbell. Um, yes. In this constellation of influences, does Iron Maiden have? No. no, definitely not. No, the other
0: artists. I mean, I'm a no. I'm a, you know, I'm a real country music and Guy Clark, Towns Van Zandt, Merle Haggard. And then modern music, Jason Isbell and Drive by Truckers and all that stuff. No, no, it's a it's a connection to my youth for sure, but in and it's uh no, there was something in the past I would say this though, I've come back to the word unified tone a bunch of times here, but there is something about that album, Number of the Beast, that it could only have been Iron Maiden and it could only have been them in that exact moment of time of time. And there is something um about how there are no, like a great magician, there, 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 there are no holes in what they're displaying to us on Number of the Beast. It is of a fully complete work. Uh, there's nothing around the edges of it. There's, um, there's nothing left out and, and there's nothing extra. It's uh, as Baroque as it is, it's lean in certain ways in that it does exactly what it sets out to do. And there aren't that many pieces of art that deliver on exactly deliver on their promise, and that album delivers on its promise.
1: Are there other musical works that you have no relation to at all as a musician, but you just respect for the
0: Sure, know? oh, tons of them, yeah, tons. Like, I, mean, I mean, often in this sort of like um, in the world of heavy rock, because the rest of the stuff does kind of apply to what I'm interested in as someone who writes and sings music. Like I mean, I would say Neil Peart's lyrics do apply, right? So Rush would apply in some way because Neil Peart tried really hard to get every lyric right. Uh, it mattered to him so much to nail it. Uh, and so that reason that that has resonance to me maybe and and what I try to do when I think about songs. And maybe part of what I like about when I go to that kind of music is it's it's tapping into a part of me that I don't tap into that often. It's a part of me that's pretty divorced from the part that intellectualizes and that theorizes. It's, it's much more primal
1: than that. Well, I want to touch on the primal thing, but just one crazy aside. Have you read Edgar Lee Masters' Spoon, Spoon River Anthology? No. He has a poem in there that's so much like The Analog Kid— by Neil Parrott. Really? That it just blew me yeah. away. It was like 30 years after I really listened to Rush that much, I read that poetry anthology that's probably from the 30s and realized that probably Neil Parrott was writing it when he wrote The Analog Kid. My listeners probably have no idea what I'm talking about. It's not a major Rush song. It meant a lot to me when I was a kid, you know, um, because- it's about Oh, that's this-
0: awesome. I mean, he so, wrote a great book um, called Ghost Rider, where he talks about a lot of- uh, I mean, it's after the terrible tragedy. It's mm. him on a motorcycle going through the, it's really an amazing book. I highly, oh, you would love it, I think. It's a travel book, actually. right? Yes, it really is. It's, it's worth your time because yeah. it's a travel, it's about literally about travel saving his life, you know, and, and in a literal way. And, and um, he does talk a lot of, uh, about many of the literary influences on the work.
1: Yeah, I, I wonder sort of in the, in, in the visceral sense you were talking about music, you know, Rush is a little bit cerebral, um, and it appealed to me at a very specific age. When I was a little bit older, I would listen to bands like Metallica or maybe even Pantera before I would run track races. That somehow there's a very masculine energy that was important to me musically. Um, yes. And I, I'm not sure how this ties in, but I, obviously, Liz Fair is not a very masculine. Exile in Guyville is not a very masculine album, but it just artistically it just spoke to me in a very specific way. Um,
0: well, ha- I would argue that I would argue that fucking run. Is her trying on a point of view that at that time was traditionally masculine?
1: Even when Even when I was 12 Yeah. And, and what a yeah what a bewitching song too. Um, yes. And that reminds me of a very specific time in my life. 9-11 had just, it's funny. That was a 1993 album. I didn't discover it until nine years later. 9-11 wow. had just happened. I was in Thailand wow. writing vagabonding and I miss, I listened to that album like three times a day, probably when I was writing vagabonding. It's so strange. Um, but uh, did did you have a masculine if weird as this question sounds, did you have a masculine relationship with music? Cause I feel like I sort of did as this sports guy who just needed visceral pump up before track races.
0: I I, I I'm not sure, you know, but I mean you know my history, so you know that like just two years later or whatever it was, I discovered Tracy Chapman and hmm. made that first album with her. So I I no, I look, I grew up in a household that was a music obsessed household. My father was in the record business. Uh, I would go to recording studios with him. So I no, I had a, a, a very wide ranging connection, deep connection to music. And I'm sure sometimes, yeah, it was about getting that aggro getting you know that. Yes. I would go to ACDC probably for that. Right. If I, I would put them back in black and that felt that way. Um, and yeah, I guess maiden felt that in some way, that thing of going to a heavy metal concert, and headbanging and putting your, you know, arms in the air is connected to that traditionally some traditionally masculine ideas, but again, I'm not sure that it's. I'm not sure I have a fully intellectual answer to this to the question.
1: Yeah, well, that's probably a really personal question for me. Just because, without being toxic about it, I just use this music almost like a drug before sporting events, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who sure. use that. Um, so I was just curious how how um No,
0: you know. I would I was probably listening. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I played varsity sports and stuff, like and 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 well, we didn't have like there was no iPod or anything. I mean, I had like the I had like Walkman and I would have probably had and I had tapes with me all the time. And yeah, sure, I would have used Rush or Van Halen more often probably for that than Maiden, because Maiden's so heavy. Um hmm it's not really pump up music to me in that way. Exactly. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just very, it's very heavy and emotionally crushing in a certain way.
1: Um, well just, just to sort of wrap things up philosophically, one interesting thing about your interest in music is that you're, well, I guess you have, you were involved with music, you know, early on in your career. Now you're a film guy. And if you could answer this question in a way that's specific to you, but maybe also is something that can, people can identify with sort of, maybe think about this in universal terms. How does this music influence you creatively? How does it become a part of your way of being in the world, if that's not too Oh, well,
0: totally. No, music, listen, I write to music all the time. So I always have music on when I'm writing. And I have to kind of find something that works with the scene I'm working on. Uh, So that's a giant part of what I do. And then Dave and I pick all the music in our show. So there's, it's a I mean, music is, I'm always in dialogue with whatever music I'm listening to. It's a huge, gigantic part of my life.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.